Corona so. So I said yesterday that today we will venture into the 21st century. And so this one lecture this afternoon, I think will probably go on a bit longer than a half an hour. Can't say quite how much longer, but I think somewhat longer. Uh, and that is because I have, to my mind, a really very rich set of notes. I didn't write any of them, but it's quotes from other people. Um, and in this one half, this afternoon session, I'd like to solve the, the issue of the nature of the physical universe, the mind-body problem, and the placebo effect. <laughs> so it may take more than half an hour. It could take 35 minutes. You know, you never can tell. <laughs> so where we left off was with the Sautrantika system, which I really am very happy to call classic Buddhist philosophy, just as, and, and with a very strong parallel, as we speak of classic, classical physics, which is Newton plus James Clerk Maxwell, electromagnetism. And with deep respect for both, because they both are tremendous systems with tremendous uh, practical applications all over the place. So they've proven themselves. And as modern physicists know, classical physics, despite its splendor, its magnificence, its pra pragmatic applications, is based upon some assumptions that are just fundamentally not true. And you only get that by really penetrating very deeply into subtle issues uh, pertaining to velocity or speed and going right down to the minute building blocks of physical reality. And likewise, the Satrantica system, as, as we've seen, it has tremendous applicability. It's very well thought out, to my mind, very intelligent, very rational. Uh, and from a Majamaka perspective, middle way perspective, despite all of its practical efficacy, its value, uh, it's it leaves unquestioned some metaphysical assumptions or assumptions about the very nature of reality that if one does not question them, then a certain whole domain or bandwidth of not only ignorance but delusion remains unchallenged. And there's no way that you can achieve liberation and be fundamentally deluded about fundamental nature of reality. So we've seen in the Sartrantica system really this, to my mind, very penetrating approach analyzing, investigating, realizing experientially the nature of impermanence, the nature of suffering, as well as genuine happiness, the nature of non-self, as in all phenomena are devoid of a self and are not owned by self, self as some autonomous entity that is controlling and stands on its own. Now recall as well, this is the segue into the 21st century, that this, the Sartrantica system says that that which is real, as opposed to merely existent, merely conventionally existent, that which is real, independent of any, any conceptualization at all, that is equivalent, that set of phenomena that is real, has causal efficacy, is equivalent to the set of phenomena that lend themselves to direct perception. Obviously, we, we can perceive more things in the future that we haven't yet, that we haven't yet. They are real, but they, are, they lend themselves to direct perception. They can be directly perceived, okay? Well, now let's look at that one right there. Saying that things that exist but are merely conventionally existed exist only because of conceptual designation. They cannot be directly perceived, like the who owns these glasses. Well, there's just no way you can investigate them. There's, you won't see. It doesn't matter what method you use by looking at the glasses themselves. You'll never guess who the owner is. You might pick up my DNA on it, 
so what? All kind of people's DNA could be on these glasses. So there's just nothing there from its side that will indicate its, own, its ownership. Um, but now, let's just pause for a moment. In a spirit of truly radical empiricism, that is exactly the same empiricism that Buddha called forth to Bahia in the scene, let there be just the scene, right? Well, here's a statement. Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist psychology, Buddhist epistemology, and that is among the five domains of sensory experience, there's no overlap. That's a fundamental thing. You do not hear colors. You do not taste sounds. You do not hear smells and so forth. There are five non-overlapping domains of experience. And moreover, and now to, ob to state something pretty obvious, colors don't have sounds. Sounds don't have taste. Tastes don't have tactile, tactile qualities of solidity and so forth and so on. So among the appearances arising in each of those five domains of experience, none of them owns another one. In fact, they're not owned by anything at all. At all. The colors are simply colors. In the scene, let there be just the scene. The sounds are just the sounds. They don't belong to anything else. They are just... There they are. And of course, none of these are absolutely out there in the objective physical world. All of these appearances, by way of the five sensory as well as mental, all those appearances are arising where? Hans Peter, in the Buddhist philosophy, of course. Where are they arising? Where, where do they occur? What's their domain? Yeah. All these appearances, where are they arising? Or a little bit more explicitly? Substrate. Exactly right, yeah. The substrate the substrate, the space of the mind, space of awareness, which means all of these appearances are not arising in physical space, which is there whether or not we're looking at it. They're arising in the space of the mind. Right? Now, when I look at this computer right in front of me, I see that the computer has a black screen. It just went dark, it went to sleep. And it has a, a silver colored, it has a silver colored, and it has a smooth texture. It's rather cold. Oh, no, actually, it's rather warm right now. Rather warm right now. And quite solid. And so forth. And then it makes that kind of noise. And then if I had a really good, good nose, and I would be able to detect some scent, some smell of the computer. Probably has some taste, at least parts of it would. Just metallic and so forth. And so the computer. The computer now has all of these attributes. That's just flat-out good English. I mean, what else are you going to say? Right? What color is, it, what color is its screen? Green has this color, right? Whoever perceives the computer in terms of really perceiving, it's simply, it's seeing, simply being a given, whoever perceives the, the computer that has the shape and has the color and has the texture and so forth and so on, that now has suddenly become an owner, a possessor of attributes including attributes of sound. The computer made that sound. That's the sound, that's the sound of the computer, of the computer. That's the color of the, that's the shape of the computer. That's the smell of the computer. Exactly when do you perceive the computer that has all those attributes? And that, moreover, how can it have the attributes? How can we say the computer has a black screen when black is a color and black arises in my substrate Whereas the computer doesn't arise in my substrate, this computer was made, I think, in China. Apple. They make their stuff in China, don't they? I think so. So there it is. So my computer was made in Ch China. I can guarantee you, my, my substrate was not made in China. Definitely not. Right? 
And so how can, my, how can that computer made in China have an attribute that belongs to my Alaya? That doesn't make any sense. Right? It's smooth. It has a smooth texture. It has a smooth, smooth quality. But smooth is a tactile sensation. It arises my Alaya. How can that belong to the computer? The computer exists in physical space. And so we're seeing the owner, and of course I'm just taking one of countless examples of objects that, that we assume to be out there independently, really out there in the physical world, that have all of these attributes that we pick up by way of the five sense doors. But how do they have them when they're in physical space and all the attributes are in my substrate? How do they actually reach out and grab them? It would seem like they should be d devoid of, empty of, everything that arises my substrate, because I bring my substrate with me. I go here, there, the computer can stay here. Not for long. So this issue was addressed by Descartes, by others in the 17th, 17th century, late 16th century. They were very well aware that the kind of colors we experience, the sounds we experience, the tactile sensations and so forth, are not simply out there in physical space. They knew this. And so they called these secondary attributes, colors, smells, taste, smoothness, tactile sensations, and so forth and so on. These are secondary attributes in the sense that they arise in the contact between the object which is out there in physical space and our particular sensory faculties. And independence upon the meeting of those two, then we as human beings see this, this, this. Whereas if you're a bat, you would be picking up sonar, which we don't as human beings. If you're a dog, I believe they're colorblind, so they won't pick up the colors that we, we, but they'll pick up a lot more sense that we do, smells, and so forth. So they, they stripped it back. They said, well, okay, the computer really isn't black. So now they start kind of violating language. They say, well, the computer screen is not really black because it doesn't have a color because a color is something that arises independent upon somebody's visual cortex. And so now what does the computer have? And bear in mind, there's an agenda here. It's a deep agenda. It's a profound agenda. And that is what's there when we're not looking and only God is looking for the whole physical universe, including what's right in front of you. What we see is always by way of our human physical senses, human physical sense faculties, is always anthropocentric. You, we're looking with human eyes, smelling with human nose, and so forth and so on. So it's always that relative to a human being, human being, human being, right? That goes for all the five senses. But these were people, these were devout religious people. Descartes was a, a very devoted Roman Catholic. It's true of all of them. Copernicus, Kepler, he was a Protestant. Newton was a Protestant. Galileo, devout Catholic, and so forth, they didn't want to simply know what, what the universe is like from a human perspective. We're fallen creatures, after all. We're sinful. We ate of the apple, or whatever that fruit was. You know, why would you want to make a big deal? Why would you want to devote your whole life to knowing the nature of reality from an Italian perspective? Or a German perspective? Or a human perspective? It's so limited. It's cramped. No, these were people with a very powerful theological motivation. They wanted to know what the universe looked like from God's perspective. Now, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting to what's real. Because what we see as human beings, oh, it's, it's, it's subjective. It's so subjective. Whereas what's really going on? What does God see when God views us, views our environment, views the, views the, the cosmos as a whole? So Descartes stripped this down to things like place, location, What's really there when we're not looking? Only God is looking. Location, okay, that's absolute. This pair of glasses, it's really located here. It's mass. 
how much dense, what kind of density does it have? Okay, that's really there. It's shape. Now that's really there. Okay. It's velocity. It's moving through space. Okay, that's really there. It doesn't matter who's looking at it. And so they strip this down to primary qualities. But they're devoid. These entities now, the, the invisible eyeglasses, the computer that has no color on its screen and so forth, now they are trying to imagine computers with none of the qualia, none of the qualities of our five senses, stripped down, denuded to their primary characteristics, which are, now we're getting to emptiness pretty quickly here, which are inherently existent. That is absolutely there from their own side. And you can detect it or not, you can think about it or not, label it or not, it doesn't matter, because that's what God sees. And God is absolutely out there. This is why His Holiness Dalai Lama has often said, teachings on emptiness are really not compatible with theism. Theism of that sort. Now, I would have to respond, there are many types of theism. Not just one form, right? Is any more than just one form of Buddhism, one, one Buddhist philosophy. But if one's notion of God is an absolute, absolutely valid observer of what's absolutely going on in the universe, because after all, he created it absolutely, took him six days, and now he's watching, then there's just no way that view, that there's a God's eye view of what's absolutely going on out there, there's no way that's going to be compatible with the Buddhist teachings on emptiness. But now we come back to the Satrantic, and then we'll get to the 21st century. From this perspective of radical empiricism, with my eyes I see colors and shapes. I do, don't see computers. With my, with my ears I hear sounds, but I don't hear, the, I don't hear a computer. And I don't smell a computer, and I don't taste a computer, and I don't touch a computer. I'm picking up earth element. Earth element is not a computer. I'm picking up fire element. It's warm. Fire element is not a computer. And so exactly how is it that I'm directly perceiving computer when I'm not picking it up with any of my five senses? And I'm not directly perceiving it with mental perception either. So if we go back to Buddhist causality, I find this point really, really interesting and extremely relevant for modern science and understanding reality. Here it is. It has to do with inference. Okay? So that was the... One topic, it doesn't matter. So I was just trying to think what Geshe Tuptengawa taught me back in 1979 when I was translating for him in Hamburg. I think it was Buddhist epistemology. I think it was. In any case, or maybe it's Abhidhamma, a long time ago. But Abhidhamma also deals with this very much. But here's the point. And that is we are making inferences. We do it all the time. And we make inferences of the cause, that is, we are knowing the cause on the basis of the effect that it produces. So common example, the most common example in Buddhist epistemology and logic is, we've, we've, and I mentioned this before, I think, we see smoke billowing up from yonder hill over yonder hill, and we, we see it just off, coming up like that. And so we know something. By directly perceiving the smoke, we know something, really beyond any reasonable doubt. We know there's got to be some combustion there, because only combustion produces smoke. So even though I can't see it, I'm inferring the cause based on the effect. Okay, fair enough. We do this all the time. It happens in science. It happens in everyday life. We can't see the effect, but we pick up the cause, and on that basis, we infer the cause. We, we, we perceive the effect, and on that basis, we infer the cause. All clear, yeah? Okay? Now, here's the catch. Sautrantika, Buddhist epistemology, says this, this works. You can do this. We do it all the time, but you can do it validly. You can come to certain knowledge 
if and only if you have the ability to, on some occasion, actually perceive. Now we're back to perception, which is a more direct way of knowing, of course. If you can actually perceive that cause producing that effect, and you can perceive that it requires that kind of cause to produce that kind of effect. Right? Now, the, over where the fire is, there may be a man, you know, scratching his head right next to the fire. And that's right where the, the fire is starting up. Okay, so he scratches his head and there's smoke. Or the person, you know, the, the, the baseball player with the rabbit's foot. I took this rabbit's foot out and I hit a home run. Wow. And then, and I find this interesting. I'm going to ramble a little bit, but it's all tied into one piece. So the baseball player brings out the rabbit's foot, a little lucky charm, right? Hits a home run. He said, wow, that really worked. And the next time, he brings the rabbit's foot with him, and he's now really confident. That rabbit's foot's going to do it for me. With that greater confidence, that belief, that commitment, that intensity, he yeah, stands a better chance of hitting a rabbit's foot. Not a rabbit's foot, hitting a home ball, getting a home run. And he does it twice. Now it's certain. He sees the pattern. Once I was pretty sure, but twice? Let's see if it happens three times. Oh, not on the third time. How about it happened again on the fourth time? Now we know. Rabbit's foots cause home runs. Right? It's not enough to see it once, but you have to see it multiple times to see it that that is a regularity, a pattern, or what scientists call a law of nature. Just seeing it once, how would you know? All kinds of things happen just before he hit the home run. His wife sneezed. Sneeze, wife. <laughs> How many things are happening just before he hit the home run? How well, an infinite number. How many are relevant to his hitting the home run? Well, for that one, you have to hit multiple home runs, right? And then you see the pattern. You see the pattern repeatedly, and you say, okay, I tease this out because I had the rabbit's foot or whatever, therefore. And likewise with the, with the fire. The fire could be produced by coal. It could be produced by wood and all kinds of things. But then you look for the patterns. But the crucial point here is that you actually see the fire producing the smoke. You have to see that. Take, you have to see that. There's the fire. There's the smoke. I got it. I'm seeing both. I'm perceiving both of them now. And I'm perceiving the relationship. I'm perceiving the fire producing the smoke. I'm getting it. And then I'm looking in other situations and I'm seeing, wow, that's simply a dust storm and... That's wet wood, and there's no fire, and there's no smoke, and so forth. And you see the pattern there. And you say, okay, I've got it figured out now. In order for, because I've seen this repeatedly, I've seen the pattern, the regularity, and therefore I'm seeing that without combustion, you just don't get smoke. Right? So there we are. We do that all the time. So that was kind of all kind of obvious. Now, suddenly it's not so obvious. Buddhist epistemology. If you cannot, even in principle see the cause, then there's no way you can infer that cause based upon an effect. If all you see is the effect, it's called a black box situation, in, in philosophically speaking. If it's a black box, if things are coming out of the black box, but you can't see inside the black box, just impossible, never will happen, then what's inside that black box is causing this to happen and that to happen? Well, you can come up with all different kinds of ideas, and the more intelligent and creative you are, you are as you see one effect coming out of another, and so forth, you come up with one ingenious idea after another of what inside that black box is producing that particular effect, but you'll never come to a resolution. You'll never come to a resolution. 
because you're not seeing actually what's producing it, and you're not seeing that that would be required to produce that effect, as you do with seeing fire and seeing it produce smoke, and seeing you have to have combustion in order for smoke to arrive. In other words, but again, now the punchline, if you, can't, if you never can see the cause, then you can never infer that cause based upon perceiving the effect. Imagine it if you come up with all kinds of reasons, one cool hypothesis after another, but you won't be able to test them because you can't see inside the black box. Okay? Now, there are two areas now in modern science where this is flagrantly obvious. Thus far, and that is, we know there's life on the planet. That's an effect. All kinds of life. What caused it? What caused the initial emergence of life on our planet? Roughly 3.5 to 4 billion years ago. That's give or take 500 million years. You know, that's a nice generous sweep. They don't know. They come up with one ingenious idea after another, and they're really smart. These scientists are smart guys, women. One after another, and they're all incompatible. One of my, my favorite one is that the first li life to emerge on planet Earth came on a meteor. I love that one. Came on a meteor from some other galaxy, perhaps. And it traveled through space. At, it's about three, de three degrees Kelvin. I mean, it's like a really cold day. And that meteor traveled for probably millions of years through space at three, de three, de three degrees Kelvin, so pretty close to absolute zero. And it got a little passenger, a little, some little living organism. And then, you know, hanging in there, I mean, millions of years at three degrees Kelvin, it's kind of like, it's going to be a lonely ride. And then finally, it's so lucky that meteorite comes and comes and it's drawn into the gravitational field of our Earth and it's drawn through our atmosphere. It starts traveling at thousands of miles per hour and it heats up to, now I can't remember, 2,000 degrees, something like, it heats up super hot as it's zooming down at I don't know how many thousand miles per second, per minute, per hour. Per hour is coming, coming. So it was at three degrees Kelvin, and now it's way up there, super hot, flaming hot. The little microbe is going, hot day. <laughs> it was really cold for a long time, but now it's getting really hot. And then it goes kablow and hits the earth, and the little microbe jumps off and says, whew, I'm home. What's up, dude? Let's start, let's start barbecuing. And is there anybody around here like me, or am I okay by myself? Just <laughs> That's possible. It's possible. But they have other ideas, that they started in volcanic fissures in the ocean, and all kinds of Have they ever been able to re replicate life? Now, that would be a slam dunk. If out of inorganic molecules, you could simply get really complex and then have out of inorganic, non-living stuff actually generate. That is, you would do it, and you would generate a living organism that would eat and defecate and reproduce. That would be, then we'd know. Then you, okay, you really got it. You really know, because you did it. They haven't done it. I mean, they're not even really close. So thus far, all the ideas, as ingenious as they are, it's a black box. And likewise, what causes consciousness? The origins of consciousness, whether on the planet or in human beings, an individual human being. Black box. Don't know. Number one, they can't even measure it. That's a problem. So, let's come back to Sautrantica. When I'm looking at, 
right in front of me. There are, let's put it in the 21st century, there are photons streaming in. The photons are not black. But they catalyze a complex sequence of electrochemical events, starting with my retina, culminating in the visual cortex, and I see black. So the photons coming in are serving as cooperative, con cooperative conditions. Right? Without them, I won't even see black. Right? But they catalyze, they trigger a lot of chemical, uh, electrochemical events culminating in the visual cortex, and then those neurons also, in their specific functioning, configuration, and so forth, they also serve as cooperative conditions because they don't turn black. They don't turn any color at all. Then they act as a cooperative condition for the emergence of the qualia, the visual impression, the color black. right? But none of those things actually transform into black. Not the photons, not my neurons, not my eyeball. Nothing here in the physical world transforms into black because black is arising in my substrate, which is non-physical, whereas all of this is physical. Right? But now beyond the veil of appearances, that's a medieval term, beyond the veil of appearances, so we have this whole physical world out there and all the activities, or so many of the activities in that physical world, the movements of matter and energy and so forth, are then acting as cooperative conditions. Cooperative conditions leading to, when they come in contact with our senses, the emergence of qualia. Colors, sounds, smells, tastes, and so forth. Right? But we never see them. Those things in physical space that are absolutely out there, independent of us, we never see them. All we're actually directly perceiving are the qualia, are the appearances to our five senses. But they're causing them, right? How do you know? How do you know? You never see them. You never see. You never see a photon. All you see are, when you look at a photon by whatever instrument of modern physics, you never see a photon. You're seeing appearances to your visual, that arise in your visual substrate, a visual, visual space, right? So how do you know what a photon is really, you know, as it is really out there independently, as some real entity that's acting as a cooperative condition or seeing black or red or anything else. How do you know? Because you never see it. It's a black box. The physical universe is a black box. You can never rip open the, the screen, the veil of appearances, and see, okay, what's really there from God's perspective? All you're getting is more appearances, more appearances, and all the appearances are arising in your substrate. So how do you know? How do you know what's really out there causing and necessarily causing the emergence of the appearances that you actually see. The appearances are the effects. How can you infer on the basis of effects, the causes, when you can never see the causes and you can never see the cause producing the effect as you can perceive fire producing smoke? So the implication here would be that the entire physical world is fundamentally unknowable. Physical world as it exists in and of itself, out there, real and absolute, is unknowable because it's in a black box. And all we're getting is appearances but you can't infer the cause on the basis of the effect if you can never, ever see the cause. And the physical world, as it exists really out there, absolutely from God's perspective, no one sees, unless you're God, and none of us know where the God even exists. Therefore, it's really flat-out unknowable. So the universe, as it exists out there in and of itself, presumably acting as cooperative conditions for the arising of all the appearances we have, is unknowable, in principle unknowable. 
Now, Werner Heisenberg, now we move to the 20th, well, the 20th century, one quip from Werner Heisenberg, he said, let us not attribute existence to that which is unknowable in principle. Well, the universe as it exists in itself, absolutely out there, is unknowable in principle. Because number one, you can't see it, and moreover, you can't measure it either. Because as soon as you try to do a measurement, what do you get? Appearances to your awareness. You never get, no science, it doesn't matter what branch of science. You never say, never mind my being human, I don't, never mind my appearances, I'm just going to look at nature itself. Never happens. Whether you're a scientist, an artist, a mother, a farmer, whoever you may be, all you're ever getting is appearances. And so if we follow Werner Heisenberg's dictum, one of the great pioneers of quantum mechanics, let us not attribute existence to that which is unknowable in principle, then the external objective physical universe, and whether it's physical or not, that of course is a human construct superimposed, is unknowable, therefore let us not attribute existence to the universe as it exists independently of experience. QED. Now, that seems strange, but you say, wait a minute, I mean, that was a bit fast there. <laughs> we navigate ourselves through this real physical world by way of our appearances, although they arise in the substrate. After all, there's got to be a real world out there and things are happening without our watching. So to say that there's no world out there independent of us is flat out silly. And that, so there's one point that causality is taking place whether, whether or not we're looking. Food rots in your refrigerator whether you're looking or not, right? And then also as we look around, we human beings in this room, we look around, we see, if we started describing what we see around us, we're going to come up with some very similar descriptions. So what accounts for the consensuality, the commonality among different individuals' perceptions? when we would, well, it's got to be something really out there, acting as cooperative conditions for our perceptions, and those cooperative conditions are absolutely out there, and then we're seeing them with human eyeballs, canine eyeballs, or whatever, but there's got to be something absolutely out there. Give me a break. Right? So that's the response. There's got to be something out there. Kant got that far, and he said, you know, we'll never know the universe as it exists in itself, in and of itself. The ding an sich, the thing in itself, independent of perception. We'll never know that. So he, that's pretty deep. The scientists have pretty much ignored that. We don't want to hear about that. We'll tell you what's really going on out there. But he did say, you know, we don't know what's really in and of itself out there by its own intrinsic nature, independent of percept and concept, but there's got to be something out there. Otherwise, what holds the whole thing together? So there's got to be something, but then he couldn't say what then you'd have to start talking about the ding an sich, the thing in itself. Is it possible to even imagine physics, this magnificent, this granddaddy of all the modern sciences, the natural sciences, is it possible to imagine physics that does not even attempt to make truth statements about what's really going on out there in the real physical world? Is that conceivable? Or would that just make it no longer physics? Well, let's ask one of the pr premier experimental physicists living, to get, living today in the field of quantum mechanics, uh, world-renowned. Uh, there's no debate about this. He holds Evan Schrödinger's endowed chair at the University of Vienna. I know him personally. My privilege to say his name is Anton Seilinger. He's really absolutely world-class. That's not open for debate. Really superb. Here's what he says. Direct quote. One may be, t one may be tempted to assume 
that whenever we ask questions of nature, of the world there outside, there is reality existing independently of what can be said about it. One may be tempted to assume that. We, Anton Seilinger, we will now claim that such a position is void of any meaning. It is obvious that any property or feature of reality out there can only be based on information we receive. There cannot be any statement whatsoever about the world or about reality that is not based on such information. It therefore follows that the concept of a reality without at least the ability in principle to make statements about it, to obtain information about its features, is devoid of any possibility of confirmation or proof. That as soon as you start making statements about the nature of reality, really out there, independent of any information we have about it, well, you've just, now you may as well just go blah, 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 because you're not making any sense. Whatever you say cannot be verified or repudiated, which means you're making no sense at all. This implies that the distinction between information, that is knowledge, and reality is devoid of any meaning. In other words, just stop talking about the nature of reality out there, independent of the information we have about it. Let's go directly to John Wheeler, a person uh, whom Anton Seiniger holds in high regard. He passed away, lived a very long life, and one of the t- probably one of the two greatest theoretical physicists in America in the latter half of the 20th century, again, very renowned. He was the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. So referring to him, another very fine contemporary uh, theoretical physicist, master physicist named Paul C.W. Davies, he writes, referring to John Wheeler and he, John Wheeler's theory here of quantum cosmology, a true observation of the physical world, he, that is John Wheeler, maintained, a true observation of the physical world, even something as simple as the decay of an atom, must not only produce an indelible record, so in other words, have some impact, it must somehow impart meaningful information. Measurement implies a transition from the realm of mindless stuff to the realm of knowledge. Otherwise, it's not a, it's not a measurement. So it was not enough to, for Wheeler that a measurement should record a bit of information that they just have some imprint on it. That lowly bit, bit of information, had to mean something. And that is mean some, something for somebody who's intelligent, who understands. Applying his usual practice of extrapolating to the extreme, he envisioned a community of physicists for whom the click of the Geiger counter amounted to more than just a sound. It was connected via a long chain of reasoning, reasoning to a body of physical theory that enabled them to declare the atom, has dec- the atom has decayed. Only then might the decay event be accorded the objective status as having happened out there in the physical world. In other words, now information is primary. So he comes here with the, what he calls a participatory universe. This is John Wheeler still melding the participatory universe with it from, from uh, melding the universe, the participatory universe with it from bit. It from bit. That's one of his slogans. It's very cool. 
An it is something like a photon, an le- electron, an atom. It's an it, a thing. Bit, of course, is, an, is a, a bit of information, meaningful information. That is, it refers to something. So I'm going to jump right in, and then, we'll, then I'll read this. And I, I can, I've studied this fairly extensively. I think I can say factual statements about his theory. And that is, John Wheeler's theory of it from bit is that all of our concepts about what's really out there, from elementary particles up to galactic clusters, and there are such a thing, so from very small or the universe at large, all of our statement about, about the its out there, from elementary particles up to galaxies, that's a big it, and that's a small it, and all the its in between. All of these its arise from bits. That is, they arise from information. What the scientists, what the physicists, the astrophysicists, what, what does that person actually know, what actually perceive, is information gleaned from making measurements. Information is not physical. It has no physical attributes whatsoever. They're not located in space, no mass, no spin, no charge, no velocity, no shape, nothing. It has no physical attributes whatsoever, and that's all that physicists actually are directly dealing with, is something non-physical. Directly dealing. And on the basis of its information they glean from looking through a telescope, electron microscope, a Hubble telescope, and so forth, based on the information that they directly know from the measurements they're taking, based on the information, then they conceive categories of matter, energy, charge, particles, waves, fields, and so forth and so on. But all of those its, electromagnetic fields, particles, galaxies, trains, stars, planets, and so forth, all of those are derivative from information and have no existence independently of the information. Information's primary, the its, are secondary and derivative. So he said there's a strange loop here. I find this fascinating, and it's really worth contemplating. He calls this a strange loop. A strange loop. The its from bits. And that is, if we did not glean any information about the universe using our five basic systems of measurement as human beings, the measurement of the world around us, namely five physical senses, those are, each of, those are our measuring devices. And from them, we're getting information, right? Each one, the visual information, the auditory, and so forth, from, based upon the information, whether gleaned from our five raw physical senses or all of the fantastic technology, of modern physics, based on that, then its emerge independence upon information. In other words, there would be no universe as conceived by the physicist with all of its its without the information that the physicist had gleaned by, by making measurements. The its actually arise independence upon the bits. On the one hand. On the, one, on the other hand, the story that we have now of the physical universe based upon marvelous measurements and sophisticated analysis is that our universe is about 13.7 billion years old. Our planet's about 5 billion years old. Life on Earth is about 3.5 billion years old. Human species, Homo sapiens sapiens, is about 100,000, 200,000 years old. And so for most of the history of the universe, according to the measurements that we have thus far, at least the universe that we know about, our planet, there was no conscious life. I mean, our planet didn't even exist for the first, what, eight and a half billion years? That's a lot of time with no life, That's just, as far as we know. And then for the first billion and a half or so, no life, 
and then how long it took consciousness, anybody's guess. There are no scientific theories that can be tested. So after some time, then we have the first conscious organisms, and then they evolved, and here we are. And so had it not been for the prior history of the universe, the Big Bang, the inflationary period, formation of galaxies, five billion years ago, our solar system with the sun, its various planets, were it not for all of those its and the evolution of life on, the, on our planet, then human, sa- hu- human beings would not have evolved, physicists would not have evolved, and they would, have not, would not have developed their system of measurement to get a lot of information. So you have to have the its before you get the bits. Right? Physicists weren't there at the Big Bang or watching the first amoeba crawl out of the ooze or whatever they did. Right. So you have to have the its before the bits. Right? But no, the its are actually derivative of the bits. It's its from bits. If there were no physicists, then there would be no measurements. No measurements, there would be no categories of space, time, matter, energy, evolution, galaxies, Big Bang, inflationary period, and so forth. None of that would be anywhere. And so it's a strange loop. It's giving rise to bits, bits giving rise to its. Pratita Samutpada, physics style. In the 12 links of Tibetan origination, which comes first? So let's return here now with that little introduction. Melding the participatory universe with it from bits. Participatory universe now. The role of the observer because there has to be an observer to make a measurement. Without someone who is informed, there is no information. Without having something about which you're informed, there is no information. So there's the three. The one who is informed, the information and that about which you're being informed, they're all mutually interdependent. If you don't have any information, you're not informed. If there's nothing to be informed about, there's no information. But if there's no information, there's nothing about which you're informed. Take away one, the other two vanish into thin air. They're all mutually interdependent. So that's a participatory universe. There's no information without observers. An inert entity can't measure another inert entity. It's not a measure, it's just called bumping. It's not a measurement. There's no information. It's just bump, an indentation. Melding the participatory universe with it from bit reveals the key concept of information lying at the core. On the, one, on the one hand, an observer involves the acquisition and recording of information. That's how information happens. It has to be an observer. On the other hand, an observer, at least of the living variety, is an information processing and replicating system. In both cases, it is not information per se that is critical, that is crucial, but semantic information. So he's making a strong point here. There are other ways of understanding information, not those ways. Semantic information, meaningful information that has a reference. It's about something. An, intera- an, an interaction in quantum mechanics becomes a true measurement only if it means something to somebody. Made explicit in Wheeler's meaning circuit, which I've already discussed. Similarly, the information in the genome is a set of instructions, say, to build a protein, requiring a molecular milieu that can recognize, decode, and act upon it. The the base pair sequence uh, on a strand of DNA is just so much gobbledygook without customized cellular machinery to read and interpret it. Well, whether machinery can read and interpret anything, I think, is an open question. 
but it's now calling forth in a very, very deep core existential way the role of observation the very, for the very existence of the universe as a whole. That it wasn't just out there, and if it is, it's forever unknowable, so why should we even talk about it? The world that is knowable is inextricably linked with, linked with the observer. I'll cite now just briefly a, an eminent astrophysicist named Andrei Lind. He's uh, Linde. He's Russian, but he teaches at Stanford. <coughs> Done some very seminal work in the inflationary period of the evolution of the universe. Whoops, no, no. I need to go back. There he is, yes. The standard assumption. Whenever you see physicists say that, you know they're about to say it's wrong. The standard assumption is that consciousness just like space-time before the invention of general relativity, plays a secondary subservient role, being just a function of matter and a tool for the description of the truly existing material world. Those are his words. That consciousness is just a little derivative. It's just fluff. It's just a function of what's really there. Matter. Right? In other words, mind is what the brain does. But let us remember that our knowledge of the world begins not with matter, but with perceptions. Back to information, being primary. He continues, is it possible that consciousness, like space-time, has its own intrinsic degrees of freedom? And that neglect, in other words, it's not just a function of something else. It really does things. And that neglecting these will lead to a description of the universe that is fundamentally incomplete, and that is a universe that is only objective, where consciousness really plays no role at all. Or consciousness really, after all, when all is said and done, it's just brain function. And perceptions are, well, actually, it's brain function. And feelings, well, after all, just brain function. In other words, just like roadkill, flattening all subjective experience and demanding, well, after all, it's, it, it has to be equivalent to something we actually know about, the physical. And he said, well, maybe that's just not right. Maybe that's incomplete. He asked further, what if our perceptions are as real, or maybe in a sense, in a certain sense, even more real than material objects? Now bear in mind, this is not a new agey physic physicist. He's really, really very eminent, very mainstream. He he's raising one question and after another. Is it possible that consciousness like space-time? Oh, I think I have that. Yep, I've, I've got that one twice. Okay. Zap. Andre Lint. So Roger Penrose, another man who is anything but a lightweight, regarded by some people as the greatest living mathematician, professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. He writes, just a short one here, one needs a theory of consciousness in effect to explain the physics that we actually perceive going on in the world. Well, that's what we don't have right now. We don't have a scientific theory of consciousness, not one that can be tested. Now let's go to Stephen Hawking. I think you know one more person who's not a lightweight. He teamed up with another physicist by the name of Thomas Hertog, actually English, so maybe Hertog in English, English pronunciation. And here's what they write. This is not, not necessarily a direct quote, but very authoritative. I, I can give you the source, anybody who's interested. There is only one world, they write, and this is a quantum world, and it is in the superposition state. Superposition state means it's what is there is a field of possibilities, a probability function. Not concrete, real, absolutely objective, physical entities out there. 
Superposition state means it's still in the probabilistic mode, potential mode, not actualized into concrete, discrete entities. Okay? Superposition, big, big important term in quantum mechanics. It is simply that every component of the superposition taken separately corresponds to what our consciousness perceives as the picture of the classical world. And to different superpos superposition terms, there correspond different pictures. Each classical world, classical world, again, it's really out there, prior to our measurement, prior to observation, and so forth. These different projections, each classical world is just one classical projection of the quantum world. So what's, in a manner of speaking, eventually what's really out there is simply a world of possibility, superposition state. Then you make a measurement, like looking. I just made a measurement. I just made a measurement of his shirt. Right? That was a measurement. I could also put up, you know, put, get some scientific instrument. It's just one more measurement. So, but when we make a measurement, then we see classical world. We see, but, but he's got a real shirt. It's right there. It's made of molecules. It's absolutely out there. I just happen to see it. And so now, something that is probabilistic becomes an actuality by the act of making a measurement. These different projections are produced. I'm going to read that last sentence. Each classical world, that is something really out there, is just one more classical projection of the quantum world. These different projections are produced by the observer's consciousness. While the quantum world itself exists independently of whatever observer. In other words, the quantum world is not dependent on your perceptions. After all, something's got to be out there independently of our perceptions. The world wasn't created you know, with man. Can you imagine 100 billion galaxies all popped up because human beings popped up on this planet? Seems quite unlikely. Okay? So something's got to be out there when we're not looking. And what he's saying is, yeah, quantum world of superposition state, only a world of possibility. That as soon as a measurement's made by us or people on people, individual sentient beings on other planets, when they can make a measurement from their perspective, a classical world pops up that they have projected based upon their measurements. But what's out there independently? Possibilities. Like the surface, oh, I love this one. Like the surface of a sphere, our universe has no definable starting point. Ever heard of beginning of samsara? Now you've heard of it again. Our observations of the cosmos today, now this one's, now it gets weirder and weirder. This is still Stephen Hawking, so again, we haven't gotten into Flakeyville. And it doesn't mean he's absolutely right. I'm not, I'm not citing these people as now God has spoken. I am citing these people as incredibly brilliant, mainstream, highly respected physicists whose, I think, whose thoughts should be taken seriously and then refuted if we can. Here they go again. Our observations of the cosmos today are determining the outcome, in this case, the entire history of the universe. Our observations today are determining the history of the entire universe. It from bit. The history of the universe is an it. And it emerges from the information we get about it, and the information we're getting about, about it is now. So the history is arising relative to measurements we're making in the present moment. And measurement made in the present is deciding what happened 13.7 billion years ago. By looking out at the universe, we assign ourselves a particular concrete history. There's a middle way here. It's a middle way. It's exactly a middle way. And that is one extreme is, this is a bunch of rubbish. 
the universe was already out there with or without God, and it really absolutely happened, and it was 13.7 billion years ago, and we know an awful lot about it, even during the nanoseconds after the Big Bang. We know about the galactic formations and the formations of everything going on, and we know it's going to happen, and it's all there independently of our knowing about it. And that's, what's, and that's called metaphysical realism. It's already absolutely out there, and we're just simply trying to reproduce or represent in our theories what really absolutely happened. In Madhyamaka view, that's called the extreme of substantialism. That it's absolutely out there, right? The extreme of nihilism is not just to say nothing exists at all. It's to say, whatever you think. <sighs> it's your reality, man. The hippies almost invented this. That's your reality. You don't think that George Bush is president? Well, whatever, man. <laughs> whatever. It's your reality. In other words, nobody's ever deluded because the schizophrenic and so forth and so on. It's their reality. Let's not mess with it. Well, that's nuts. That would make a complete mockery of all of science. And I don't think science should be mocked, mocked. And I don't think sanity should be mocked either. And if it's true that ignorance and delusion lie at the root of suffering, then we shouldn't be bowing and kowtowing to delusion unless we simply want to be perpetuating suffering. So something in between those two. It's not just make it up as you go, anything, anything goes, and pass the dope. Or is it it's absolutely out there, it's something in between. And the in-between is what I've called, and I didn't, did not coin the term, ontological relativity. Given a certain set of measurements, a conceptual framework in which, you're making, in which or by which you're making sense of your measurements. There are truths to be discovered that can be re replicated, and there are assertions that you may make that can be repudiated relative to your system of measurement and the conceptual framework in which you make sense of what you're measuring. Remember yesterday? It is nama that identifies objects and manas or mano that makes sense of them. Right? And it depends upon that we have the categories of mind and matter and so forth and so on. But they weren't already out there, slapped together somehow. Oh, so something in between where there are truths to be discovered, and they may be very expensive truths. I think this Hadron, large Hadron super collider, I think it was $6 billion. Something like that, I think. That's expensive to find out whether the Higgs boson exists or not. You know, they didn't spend all that money to say, well, I kind of feel like it does. That's my opinion. That's my reality. That's free. Now, these are really good physicists with superb technology. But are they finding about what exists absolutely independent of their systems of measurement? Not according to quantum mechanics. They are finding, making deep insights, profound, maybe even very practical insights, about the fundamental constituents of physical reality down to the ele level of elementary particles relative to the systems of measurement they've designed and making sense within the conceptual framework of the standard theory, standard atomic theory, and so forth and so on. They are true for that context. They are, they are true relative to that framework. But are they absolutely true from God's own perspective? If God does have an absolute perspective, no. No evidence. And moreover, if you say, yes, they are, prove it. And then we're right back to Ensign Seilinger. You can't prove the validity or the invalidity. You can't prove or disprove any statement you make about reality as it exists independent of your system of measurement. 
impossible. Therefore, why don't you just stop talking about that which is meaningless, devoid of meaning, is what he said. If we could, oh, it gets better. If we could stand outside the world, we would be able to see the present affecting the past. In other words, if you could stand outside of time, we'd be able to see the present affecting the past as when an observer affects a photon's, a photon's path through the universe. Now that's actually a thought experiment I think John Archibald Wheeler himself came up with. And, that is the, and it's, it's really fundamental quantum mechanics, but he made it large. That when you make a measurement, you, that, that act of making a measurement actually influences what occurred prior to that event in terms of the, the trajectory of the proton of the photon. It was retroactive. That's just standard quantum mechanics. But he applied this now to photons traveling through the universe and saying the measurement you make actually has a retroactive effect on the flight, the, the trajectory of the photon. As when an, obse an observer affects a photon's path through the universe. That's from outside. But from inside the universe, so here we are, from inside the universe, where we're getting these classical pictures of the universe based upon our measurements, which then we reify as being absolutely out there in and of themselves. From inside the universe, though, from the only place we can possibly be, no observer sees vi causality violated. Causality is violated if the effect is, effect is influencing the cause. You make a measurement and then it influences something prior to that. That violates causality. Then go off and kill your grandmother and see what happens. You know, that's the classic one. Kill your grandmother and then she can't give birth to, your to one of your parents in, which you're in case you're not here, which means you can't, mur you can't murder your grandmother. So inside the system, no, that can't happen. Outside the system, oh yeah. What we observe in the present, the final state, is one entire causally consistent theory or another. And that's where the theory makes sense. It's true or false. You can test it one causally consistent history or another depending on the system of measurement you use. Because you chose the system of measurement. From within, any with, from within any given history, cause and effect proceed in the usual manner. Independence upon that cause, then subsequently this effect arises. Now just one more quote from Ande Linde. The universe becomes alive, time-dependent, which is to say the universe evolves. Last 13.7 billion years. The universe changes. Things happen in the universe. So he doesn't mean literally alive, like a Gaia principle. He's not referring to that. Just alive in the sense of transforming, evolving, changing. The universe becomes alive, that is time-dependent, only when one would divide it into two parts, an observer and the rest of the universe. Then the wave function of the rest of the universe depends on the time measured by the observer. In other words, evolution is possible only with respect to the observer. Without an observer, the universe is dead. It's called the problem of frozen time. Very well known in modern quantum cosmology. The universe is, would be absolutely static were it not for the role of the observer in this observer participant observer participant universe. Paul Davies has written a whole book on this. It's called The Problem of Frozen Time. And 
the way it works is essentially quite simple. And that is to say that, that, that time is not out there objectively. Otherwise, the universe would go on with or without observers. It's not there objectively. It's not there. It falls out of the equations. That's the big deal that it was Wheeler and a, a colleague of his, actually a graduate student of his, Bryce DeWitt, Bryce DeWitt. They took Schrodinger's wave equation, which is the standard equation for doing calculations of quantum mechanics, and applied it to the whole universe. And so instead of taking a, assuming that quantum systems are very narrowly confined within a lab, and then the rest of the world is classical, they flip that on its head and say, let's assume the whole universe is a, is a quantum system. In which case, time drops out of the equation. There is no objective time. And now we have its from bits. The whole physical universe com consisting of its arises independent upon information. On the basis of information, then the conceptual mind makes the its that then causally interact with each other. Right. But now there would be no time apart from the intervention on the part of an observer, an observer participant. And what does the observer participant do? And what the observer participant does is, well, a little bit poetically, but not much, say, the observer says, now. You know, now. And now that I've got now, you know, like, well, right, right now. Now that I've said now, relative to now, we can speak of the past. And relative to now, we can speak of the future. And then the past giving rise to the future. And now everything flows through time. But the universe doesn't say now. Objectively, mindlessly, without measurement, without information, the universe doesn't say now, past, present, or future. It doesn't say years. It doesn't, it doesn't change. It's frozen. It takes an observer to break the symmetry, say now, which is then different from not now, then and then, and now relative to the observer, you have a world that changes through time. Let's just take one final look at this short statement. If we could stand outside the world, we would be able to see the present affecting the past. <coughs> that would imply that one could see the future affecting the present. Right? Symmetry there. Ever heard the phrase, take the fruition as the path? Take something that hasn't happened yet, namely your achievement of perfect enlightenment, and then saying, reaching a long arm out, maybe one lifetime, maybe a thousand lifetimes, I'll take the effect as the cause. Thank you very much. I'm going to take the effect as my path. Because after all, time has no absolute reality anyway. There's no absolute time between now and the time that I will achieve enlightenment. Is there time? Yeah. I don't know how much. But it's not absolute time. And so he's saying, from that perspective, now not from inside the system. So once again, if Alan Wallace says, from my perspective, well, one day I'm going to achieve enlightenment. Let's take that one on faith. And therefore, that, that Buddha that I will be, um, I am going to take that, I, Alan Wallace, am going to take that as the, my path, which means I, Alan Wallace, am a Buddha. Doesn't feel all that different. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm going to super propel myself. I'm going to put myself into warp drive. You know, not three countless eons. 
I'm going to put myself into warp drive and zip through three countless eons of accumulating merit, collapse that down to a lifetime or two. But if I try to do that from the perspective of Alan Wallace, it's just something to laugh at. Right? There is a perspective, though, from which that is valid. Otherwise, all of Adriana would be a joke. Hey, you can't violate causality. You can't make the effect the cause. Give me a break. From inside the system, from inside samsara, from inside space-time, from inside our existence as human beings. But if you realize the emptiness of all of that, of the physical universe, not just yourself, that small potato, realize the emptiness of the entire, the whole works, the entire universe, that it arises only relative to measurement, only relative to information. It's not already there, nor is it sheer whimsy. True statements. Tongkap is so strong on that point. There are valid and there are invalid statements, valid and invalid cognition. Boy, is he strong on that point. Within the system, absolutely. Just like in science. Right? But if you see, now it's Tongkap all over again, or any great follower of the Majjhimaka, if you perceive or understand the entire physical universe and your presence in it and consciousness, your mind, your identity, all is empty of inherent nature. None of them existing independently of measurement independently of, of information, independently of conceptual designation, all constructed, then you deconstruct. That which you constructed, you can deconstruct from your perspective. And you dissolve the entire universe, leaving not a single atom behind. You dissolve it into emptiness, and you dissolve your mind into rikpa. Rikpa is out of time. Dulidepa, dushipa, it's in the fourth time. Rikpa is in the fourth time. It's not in the past, present, or future. Not even in the present not within that demarcation of past, present, future. It's outside the system. It's in the fourth time. Rikpa is viewing reality from the fourth time, outside of time, in which the ground, the path, and the fruition are all simultaneous. Dissolve everything, the entire phenomenal universe, into emptiness, and then not there. That not, that's not enough. Then dissolve your awareness into primordial consciousness viewing from that reality outside the system. Now the, effect, the, now the effect, the fruition, your Buddhahood, can influence the cause. And you can take the fruition as the path, but only from that perspective. If you try to take it from the perspective inside the system, it's simply delusion. It's taking you in the opposite direction from enlightenment. You are your ordinary sense, and oh, by the way, you're also Nimanakaya. You're a tuku. You're an enlightened being. I don't think so. So here is the final sentence. Since science, since Copernicus, the rise of modern science, has aimed to model a universe in which we are mere byproducts. That's what else do we call ourselves? Human beings, physicists, and so forth byproducts of a long, long evolution that never had us in mind because it didn't have a mind. And in, you know, if you're dealing with 21st century physics, God does not really play a role. So it's just a mindless Big Bang and then you know, eight and a half billion years of mindlessness, planet form mindlessness, with again no appearances anywhere in sight. Three and a half billion years ago, mindless little organisms, somehow Merlin or somebody made them conscious. Nobody got a clue how, not in the scientific world. And then we evolved from the simple living organisms to up to where we are now. 
And this is pretty much, I mean, I've heard this. Consciousness is just a byproduct. I mean, I, I've read serious people, biologists, evolutionary biologists, saying, what's the use, what's the function of consciousness? Really, what, you know, everything we as, as evolved beings, living organisms, everything we have, teeth and hair and genitals and so forth and so on, they all have a function. And the function is to survive and procreate. That's the bottom line. But was it really necessary to be conscious? Couldn't we have just kind of bumped around in the dark? What function does consciousness have? And then from the evolutionary biological framework, they try to conceive of what uses consciousness. Like it could have happened, could have not happened. And what's it good for? So in other words, just a byproduct. It's just one of those things. It made sex feel better. I mean, you know, otherwise you could have mindless sex. You could just bump into the right organism and go quink, quink, quink. And then... <laughs> And for no reason, because you're not experiencing anything, you just go oink, oink, and then you have more like oink, oinks, and they're perpetuating in all the planet a bunch of little blind, mute, unconscious billiard balls procreating. <laughs> At least it's more interesting with consciousness. But there it is. I mean, that is the view, that it just happened to have happened. Life just happened, whether it was that marvelous little traveler on the meteorite, long-lived and very robust, <laughs> or one that pops out of a volcanic fissure, you know, from lava and the, 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 or the chemical soup and so forth. They got all kinds of very interesting ideas, none of them testable. And they take them so seriously, I'm quite astonished. So the standard model is that we are mere byproducts. It just happened to do. But this top-down cosmology, the top-down is, look, everything we know about the universe the past, the history of the universe is based upon measurements we're making in the present because we weren't there at the Big Bang. We weren't there at the formation of the planet. We weren't there before human beings came along by definition. And so there is no such thing as bottom-up cosmology. You can't call a physicist who was here when the planet formed and said, yep, I was watching. You got it right. You can't do it bottom-up. There was nobody there to look at the causes. History is a black box. The present is an effect of the past. Whoever sees the past, all you ever see is the present. But the present is arising in dependence upon the past, right? When was the last time you saw the past? Remembering something? What you're doing is perceiving, a perceiving images right now. The past is a black box. This is what Stephen Hawking is saying. The past, your past, the past of the, of the planet, of the species, of the galaxy, of the universe, the past is a black box. The past exists in a superposition state. The future and the present are a set of possibilities waiting for a measurement, and the measurement always takes place in the present. And who says present? Who says now? Observers do. Without their saying now, there would be no change at all. There would be no past and no future and no present. So the past is a black box. Your past is a black box. It didn't absolutely happen. Your past arises relative to the measurements you're making in the present. So to lighten up a little bit, I think I've said this before, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Because <laughs> what's your childhood? It consists, I mean, as soon as you start talking, what you're talking about is measurements you're making now. 
What do you remember now? Everything you say about your childhood is going to be invoked by making measurements right now. You can't go off and make measurements five years ago. Five years ago you could, but then who knows what you did then. And if you try to remember it, you remember, you're, just you're invoking images right now. You're perceiving something. You're making measurements right now. Your past exists in a superposition state, let alone your future, let alone the present. So there's a moral here, lots of morals here. My favorite one is the following. I've not seen anybody else say this. It's so heretical that if the scientific community could burn people at the stake, I would definitely be a top candidate for what I'm about to say. As a religious studies scholar, I was quite intrigued because I, I read 19th century philosophy and a lot of other things at Stanford. And one of the strong, quite very influential intellectuals in the 19th century was a man named Ludwig Feuerstein. Philosopher, very deeply concerned with theology. And he made a revolutionary hypothesis that actually had a lot of ripple effect, a lot of impact on people like Trotsky, I believe, and I think indirectly Karl Marx, and so forth and so on. A lot of atheists who followed. And his central premise, this philosopher, was that having read Christian theology with all the descriptions of God, God as a man, God as a father, God as a punisher, the rewarder, the creator, God in charge, all of that. So you look at God. What is God? What do we know? Who's ever seen God? Who's ever seen this God that created and punishes and all? Who's ever seen this, this cause which we're seeing only the effects. Who's ever seen that cause? Who's ever seen the black box of God? And he said, what our 19th century vision, our concepts of God are, are basically just concepts of dad, writ large. Tough dad. But he's just. He can be mean as hell. And I mean literally. <laughs> I mean, mean is eternal hell. That's pretty mean. <laughs> but he can also be really benevolent. I mean, eternal life, salvation. When he wants to reward, man, he can do a real, real number on reward. He's just. He's wrathful. But you know, he's dad. What do you expect? He can be jealous. But he's dad. What do you expect? All-powerful. Yeah, from the kid's perspective, that's for sure. God is just your notion of dad projected on the whole universe. And nothing more. Man created God. And since men were running the society, they decided God was a man. They wouldn't, the last thing they'd say is, the person in charge is a woman. Then they'd have to start respecting women. Who wants to do that? <laughs> what a downer. So let's keep it in the gender. Right? Keep, it, keep, you know, keep the power where we want it. We men are in charge, and the man who's super in charge, the one who's in super charge, basically, you know, he's got whiskers. Well, you want whiskers. So that really created quite a fuss. That created quite a fuss. That God is actually nothing more than a projection superimposed on the universe as the ultimate creator. But just basically, based upon your own notions of dad, good dad, nice dad, powerful dad. I mean, basically infinite, infinite projection of a finite notion of God, of dad. Well, if the universe exists, the, the, universe, the history of the universe exists in a superposition state, 
that nothing absolutely happened. In other words, there's no absolutely true account of what went on. Because that's exactly the implication. That there are multiple histories. Stephen Hawking says elsewhere, you can choose your history of the universe based upon the system of measurement you choose. You'll get another history and another history and another history. All depends on what data are you collecting? What information are you getting? And it will be true or false relative to your cognitive frame of reference. System of measurement, conceptual framework. If that's true, if there's no absolutely true history of the universe, then what are the implications for the, the big picture? And that is for the first roughly 10 billion years, at least from as far as we know, because the only life we know is this planet. So speaking from this perspective, for the first 10 billion years, there was only physics. There's just inorganic physics. It's just it's matter, energy, it's chemicals. No life, no consciousness, no nothing. Right? It's just, just chemicals. And then about three and a half billion years ago, then out of those inorganic chemicals, and nobody knows how, all kinds of speculations again, then organic chemicals and the first living organisms emerged. So there's a sequence there. First physics, and then we have living organisms. Highly unlikely those first ones were conscious. I don't know any biologist, I think they were. Single-celled organism actually is aware of its environment. I don't think anybody says that. And so, but then with evolution, from these single-celled single living organisms that are which are unconscious, they evolved, 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 and at some point, we don't know when, when, were, when was the first emergence of conscious living organisms? Don't have a clue. Again, all kinds of speculations, none of them scientifically testable, which means they're not scientific theories. They're just guesses. But at some point, there had to have been, because we're conscious, and we weren't here five billion years ago, presumably. And so those unconscious living organisms evolved into conscious organisms, and now we have mind, primitive minds, and they, in dependence upon the nervous system, evolved, 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 and then we have Einstein. So really big brains and incredible intelligence. He's a good example, 20th century. So there it is. Quite, that's, that's the standard picture. I think that it's not a coincidence that over the last 400 years, the evolution of science, Eurocentric science, started with physics, dominated through the, until the 19th century. It was just physics, physics, chemistry, physics, chemistry, physics, chemistry. And then around mid-19th century, then biology coming up. And of course, 1859, Origin of the Species, Darwin, the first great revolution of the life sciences, Darwin. Mendel coming a little bit later, genetics. Then we get towards the end of the 19th century, and now, for the first time, there's a science of mind. There wasn't for the first 300 years of modern science. It took them a long time. It was a slow starter. 1875 or so, William James, Wilhelm von Wundt, a couple of pioneers, started the scientific study, experimental science, making observations, applying the scientific method to mind. And so finally, having first the physical sciences very well developed, and then out of them emerging the biological sciences, reducing really understanding that biology really emerges from physics. And then psychology emerging. And from the beginning, many, many psychologists were assuming that, of course, mind is really a function of the brain. They were assuming that from the beginning. A lot of them were. 
that out of biology emerges the psychology, the science of the mind. And that's true this day, then. They all continue evolving. Physics continues to evolve, the second revolution. Uh, biology evolves, Crick and Watson, DNA, and marvelous evolutions of, of biology, including neurobiology, and then psychology riding that wave, where psychologists, many of them, are intent on reducing psychology to biology, and many biologists intent on reducing biology to its fundamental components. So you noted a parallel there, that the history of the universe exactly corresponds in sequence to the history of the evolution of modern science over the last 400 years. The whole story may be a projection of the, hist of the history of 400 years of Eurocentric investigation of the universe. We started with physics. The universe started with physics. Then we got good at biology. Then the universe created life. Then we started studying the mind. And then the universe came up with mind. Ludwig Feuerstein all over again. That we're saying of the entire universe that the evolution of the entire universe reflects exactly and is a projection of the history of modern science over the last 400 years. And, and that story has no existence independently of that 400-year history of Eurocentric science. It's a really good story. And it's a true story based upon the measurements that were made. It's not whimsy. It was very expensive and by very brilliant people. It's not whimsy. But it's also not absolutely true. So maybe the whole picture is simply the projection of the evolution of our science over the last 400 years, and nothing more. And then one could imagine, but what if the first scientist, rather than like Descartes, envisioning a mechanical universe, actually envisioned the fundamental core of the universe being a life principle? And out of a life principle emerging the inorganic world, like the dead skin, that the universe is fundamentally alive, that life is the core, the bottom line, the fundamental principle of the entire universe. Some serious thinkers have thought along those lines coming up with what's called the anthropic principle, that the universe actually formed in the way it is with the precise, precise laws that it has to enable life to emerge. That life was the driving force for the evolution of the universe to occur as it did with all of its laws, its physical laws just enabling life to emerge. Life is primary. Dead matter is the dead skin. It's just the, dead the habitation for life to do its thing, but life was demanding to manifest. And it required a physical universe for that to happen. There's another scenario. If the first revolution in science had been in biology, maybe we would all have that view, that a long time ago there was the emergence of life, and then out of that, the catalyzation of life, and then out of that emerged a physical universe. What about if the first natural scientists were contemplatives? Or psychologists? They consider, no, actually, it's not life principle. Life is derivative of consciousness. Consciousness is fundamental. Out of consciousness emerges life. Out of life emerges the dead matter, like the hair and the nails of the universe. But what's the whole juice? It's, it's all consciousness, for which life is an emergent property. What if the first scientists had been focusing on consciousness? Would we then not have another history based upon other set of measurements, maybe contemplative measurements? rather than measurements of technology. So to take Stephen Hawking's 
proposition seriously, that all of our classical pictures of 13.7 billion years, six realms of existence, this, that, and the other thing, within the context, all of these are classical projections superimposed by the observer based upon measurements that seem to be absolutely real and out there. But they're all simply projections. We are participating in the creation of the universe that we experience. But independently of those conceptual designations, the universe is simply sipa. Sipa. Nice word in Tibetan. It's a word synonymous with the phenomenal world. And sipa means possibility. That's a Buddhist term. Prior to making designations, it's the realm of possibility. Make a measurement, make a conceptual designation, and now something freezes, and you've got a real world that you lock onto and then think it's really out there, independently of your conceptual designation. And that's the root of samsara. Not knowing what's going on, and then imputing, designating, creating by conceptual projection a world of its. No problem so far, but then reifying them as being absolutely out there, that's the root delusion, independence upon which craving, hostility, all other mental afflictions arise, and all karma is accumulated. From that fundamental delusion of reifying the its and not recognizing they come from bits. But then if you think, oh, you mean information is absolutely real. Information doesn't even exist apart from one who is informed. Oh, you mean the one who is informed is absolutely real. The one who is informed doesn't exist independently of information. Well, okay, the physical, the, the universe out there is absolutely real, that which, about which we're getting information. That about which we're getting information has no existence independent of information. It has no existence independent of the observer or the informed. In other words, sarva shunya, all empty, all the way up and all the way down. But is there a perspective on the nature of reality that's not from inside the system? not from inside space-time, not from inside an evolving universe, not from inside samsara. Is there a perspective? Of course. It's rikpa. That's a view from outside the system. So that's just the opposite of the root of samsara, which is avidya, not knowing. The opposite of that is Vidya, which is the Sanskrit for Rikpa. So know Rikpa, and you know who you are. And knowing who you are, you know the indivisibility of your own Rikpa or your own Yeshe, primordial consciousness, the primordial indivisibility of primordial consciousness with the Dhammadhatu, the ultimate Dhammadhatu, the absolute space of phenomena out of which relative space-time emerge, independence upon designation. Then you know reality as it is, and you know who you are in the same breath. So we've just moved from classical Buddhist philosophy to relativistic Buddhist philosophy. And that's where we're going, from Sautrantika to Shantideva. Shantideva is where we're going tomorrow. And Shantideva is going to come right back to the body Right back to the body. This was one day. Now it's, it's time is finished. I told you gone more than half an hour. I spoke the truth.
Tomorrow we're going to go to Shantideva, writing from the Madhyamic perspective. And he's going to attend to the body, closely apply mindfulness to the body. Not from the Sautrantika perspective, the Madhyamika perspective, the middle way. So, big shift. True revolution. As the rise of quantum mechanics was a true revolution, just like Galileo started a true revolution, the first revolution in modern science. Niels Bohr, Max Planck, Einstein, and so forth. True revolution. And that is, if you understand the implications of quantum mechanics, which Stephen Hawking is certainly, I think, going, going deep, then you simply cannot view the physical world in the same way any longer. You have to experience it differently. You have to view it differently. Okay? So that's the end of this afternoon lecture. I just wanted to tell you something just pure for fun. Just for fun. But I found it very fun. I read it just a couple of days ago. NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, big organization of the United States government. They have a theory now. It was formulated some a few decades ago, but now they found a way to experimentalize it, that is, maybe actually be able to test it, formulate it. It's gotten some sharp edges. And it's about how to travel faster than the speed of light. Now, Einstein's theory says if you try to accelerate a particle or a, sp a spaceship, anything, from you know, five miles an hour up to the speed of light, it would take infinite energy. Infinite energy. Never can do it. Never can do it. And so that, that's an absolute limit. Photons travel at the speed of light, but nothing accelerates up to that level. And since we're not already traveling at speed of light, then we're out of luck, right? So all the other galaxies, we can just think about it and maybe you know, draw inferences from by making telescopic observations and so forth. But in terms of getting to visit well, it just seemed totally implausible. Mars, probably not even outside our solar system. So in other words, we're located in a very, very tiny, almost like medieval Europeans. We don't go and travel 10 more than 10 miles outside of our home. And we don't even travel outside of our solar system. You know, we're just little hillbillies hanging out on our own little planet and never get out much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so there's, some so there's a theory here, it's, it's, and it's NASA funding it. So it, it doesn't mean it's true, but it does mean some really smart people are thinking this should be taken seriously. And that is the vision here, is that rather than trying to propel yourself in a rocket through space at some speed close to or faster than the speed of light, and they're talking about faster than the speed of light, you do something very tricky. And they actually think that it could be done with a very finite amount of energy, a very, very modest amount of energy. So in other words, not, not something silly, because NASA doesn't have enough money for that. They, they don't really have enough money to waste on silly things, because their budget's been scrunched. And here's what you do. You get your spaceship, and then with some very special technology, you contract space-time in front of you, and you expand space-time behind you. In which case, then you just slip through by modifying space-time in front of and behind you, but without you really moving at all apart from that. You're just having this impact on the front and behind, and that sends you through. In which case, they say you could arrive at another galaxy in a matter of a week or two. And how you'd do it would be you would send your rocket up with conventional means, just pop it up there like any of our rockets, get it out there where you're feeling comfortable, then you turn off your engines, and then you put in your warp drive. You get your target. You probably would want to have a target. Know where you're going. <laughs> and then you slip into this warp drive. You go from galaxy to galaxy in a matter of days, 
But when you get right there, when you get really near your target, then turn that off, and then you, you coast in the last little bit with conventional means again. In other words, it's Warp Drive. Welcome to Star Trek. <laughs> so I thought that was just fun. I thought that was just fun. If they, if they succeed on that, I'll, I'll still want to follow the path of enlightenment more than that. <laughs> but if I have some spare time, I'd really like to pop into that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I told you to take a walk. You know, when you get a little bit scrunchy and a bit kind of uptight, go for a walk. Or hop into a spaceship to take you to another galaxy. That could really refresh you. You know, get out and breathe some fresh air. Get the big picture. Okay. Enjoy your evening. Tomorrow we're back to half-hour sessions, half-hour lectures, Shanta Deva, close application of mindfulness to our own bodies. Enjoy your evening.